0: It's a series that was created by you all during the season of Advent, during the month of December. You sent in, so many of you sent in stories and statements about what God has taught you about himself in the past year. And we compiled it and arranged it, and we have an eight-week series uh, going over the attributes of God. And each week, we're going to be having a story from the community uh, sharing about uh, what God has taught them and the way that they've come to understand that specific attribute of God Uh, In their life and the story tonight is not going to be at the beginning of the sermon It's going to be at the end and so uh, look forward to that But uh, as we jump in tonight last week, we looked at God is faithful and tonight we look at God is loving Uh, A.W. Tozer who is a theologian and scholar. He once said this He said what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us So when you think about God what comes into your mind, your questions, your doubts, your beliefs, your convictions about who God is, is the most important thing about you. I think he's right on, because what you believe about God shapes everything in your life. It affects every aspect of who you are, how you treat other people, how you view your career, and the weight that you put on different decisions in your life, how you view your resources, how you, how you care for others when maybe they, they harm you. Your desires are shaped through what you believe about God. Your meaning, your purpose, every different aspect of who you are is shaped by your view of God. And so if that's true, which I believe it is, and A.W. Tozer is right, the most important thing is what you think about God, when he's mentioned, when you're asked to really wrestle through that, if that's the most important thing about who you are, then this is the right way to start 2019. A series looking at who God is and and going over eight of the main attributes of God. And so if that's the case, I want to just take a moment at the beginning and I want to ask a few things of you as you move through this series, whether you're joining us the first time or this is your home church, to commit to something for the rest of this series, and hopefully it's a, a habit and a routine that carries on into future series and future engagement in the church, and that's this. I want to ask you to be honest with yourself. I think it can be really easy to come to church, especially if it's a priority in your life and you come often, and you don't necessarily come expectant. I know what that feels like, too. You come, and it's just kind of, you're going through the motions. It's what you do on Sunday night at 5 p.m., You go to church, unless there's some other reason you can't show up, and you come, and we sing songs, and we share announcements, and we pray, and you listen to a sermon, and you partake of communion, and then you hang out in the back a little bit. Maybe you go get something to eat with people that are going out after, and then you start your week. It's just the motions and the routine. And I want to ask you to try, in the best of your ability, to be honest with yourself as we move through this series, and specifically with the attributes of God. So I have three things And I'm going to beat a dead horse here. Uh, The first one is please text in that number that Tommy told you to text in a lot. You need to text in that number. You can see on the next slide, if you see, here's my three things I'm going to ask of you. Next slide. There you go. Take notes, community group, and text in. Here's why. Some of you here are, are maybe not accustomed to taking notes. Some of you come with notebooks. You got your moleskin, it's got all your stuff, you got all your notes. It's very specific the way that you do it. Some of you, you're like, the idea of taking notes is terrifying. You're like, I don't know what to do. You're like, already nervous. Listen, there's no right way or wrong way to take notes. You do not have to manuscript everything. It could be a bullet point. You could draw, you know, like whatever you're feeling. There was actually someone that attended the church for a while, and she drew every single sermon, and when she left and moved away, she gave me a packet of all the, the pictures that she drew of what God was teaching her through each of the sermons. It was really cool. So you could draw, you could bullet point, you could manuscript, but here's why. As you're working through, and as you're encountering God's text and His Word, and Different things are being said, and it's triggering something in your mind, maybe a doubt or maybe a fear, maybe a question, maybe something that you want to remind yourself that you can easily forget. Taking notes enables you and helps you to be honest with yourself and not just sit and absorb and go through the motions, but write down questions on the back of your worship program, the notes section, on your phone. Actually, if you text in and get the app, there's all my slides are there through the series, and you can take notes on the app right under each slide with different thoughts that you have. And I'm encouraging you to do that because I want you to really ask yourself questions, to be honest with yourself about who God is and specifically each of the attributes. And then the second one on there is to join a community group. And, uh, you know, we we encourage everyone to join a community group for many reasons. One is that we're meant as people to, to live life together and so we, we grow and we process things together, and we always tell you each week that you can come here and you can belong before you believe that this is a safe place for you to come regardless of where you're at in faith, regardless of the questions and doubts that you have, and that carries over into community group. We want community groups not to be just, uh, just a sharing of ideas, but actually a challenging and a sharing of doubts and, and an honesty being real with what you're going through. And so if there was ever a time to join a community group, now is the time. You know, you can text in and there's groups all over the city and and you can find one that works for you. Uh, And maybe you were wondering, all the groups are open, they're mixed, they're men and women, single, married, uh, all over the map. And so any group that is on our list is that way and is open and available to you. But what I want to encourage you to do for those of you that attend community group and those of you that maybe aren't yet is to take the honest questions that you're working through and the thoughts that you have about God, the things you want to remind yourself, and to share them in community. Because we don't only need to share, but we also need to receive what other people share. And so when you're sitting there and someone else is asking a question and sharing something in honesty, it's going to also benefit and grow everybody there. And so are you guys in this with me? Are you down? Someone said no. It was Debbie. Debbie said it was so I'm you know I, I know the community group thing some of you are like I'm not going to say yes because I don't know if I'm joining community group that's okay different seasons of life but will you be honest about your beliefs and your thoughts about God as we move through this series and take some notes you, are you in that was a pretty good response I'm not we're normally a two-time church I ask a question nobody responds and then I ask again but that was pretty good for the first one so I'm I'm already happy we're off to a good start here Tonight, as I said, we're starting with the second attribute of God we're going to be looking at, which is God is loving. And this is probably the most transformative attribute of God, but it's also probably the most misunderstood and most debated. Here's why. When we think about love, our encounter and experiences with love taints and affects the way we view who God is. And so oftentimes, many of us will think, about God as being loving, but we think God is love according to our own definition. Yes, I agree that God is love, that the supreme being that is up there that I believe in, but I do not believe that God is love according to a biblical definition. I do not believe that God is love as I read or as I've heard read in Scripture, That seems like an unloving God, actually, because that God has laid out a very specific path to life and flourishing, and I don't like that path. I disagree with it, and that God also says that in order to be in relationship with him and find forgiveness and the assurance of eternal life, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, and that seems exclusive and narrow-minded, and so I believe that God is love, but God is love according to my definition, See, oftentimes the reason that you may believe this or or maybe you're sorting through this is because we believe that love is enabling someone to live the life that they desire. It's the freedom to live however you see fit. It's the freedom to follow any passion and any desire that you deem good and right for yourself. To pursue anything And to to tell someone that they shouldn't pursue that and that's not a path of flourishing is in fact unloving. And so I think a very common and comforting way to view God culturally in in this, this moment in 2019 is to say, I do in fact believe that God, whoever God is, is loving, but it's according to my definition of love. And it's comforting because when you you believe this, and this is your conviction about who God is, it enables you to justify your life, right? Because no matter what decision you make, no matter what path you take, God is always supporting you. He's always behind you. He's encouraging you to to live your dreams, to follow your passions and your desires because according to our cultural definition of love, love is enabling anyone, giving anyone the freedom to live as they see fit. So it's comforting in that respect because you can live however you want and God's always behind you. But secondly, it's comforting because when you think like this and you believe like this, you're never actually out of step with God's plan. There's there's never a sense that maybe you're not following the path that God desires for you because God's plan is your plan, always. And so we follow after this, and this is a very comforting way to believe about God, but if you believe this, here's what you're saying. You're saying, I do not believe in an unchanging, uncreated, transcendent God. I believe in a God according to to my creation, and according to my definition. And see, the very fear that drives many people to believe this is actually true of this belief as well. This is a very exclusive and narrow-minded belief, right? Really, the the reality is this. Every belief and every claim about God is exclusive and narrow-minded. We just like to label other people with those those labels, but it's true of anyone that makes any claim about God, because if you believe anything about God, and you make any claim, you're automatically excluding other people that disagree with you. You're saying, I do not believe in the biblical idea of God. I do not believe that there's one way to God through Christ. I believe that God is love, but like this. So you're automatically being exclusive and narrow-minded, but it's okay, because we're all exclusive and narrow-minded. And see, one of the things I love, actually, about the biblical God, the God that we're here to worship tonight, that we believe is love, is that though our claim about who God is, is in fact exclusive, and some may label you as narrow-minded, it does not give you license to be hostile or to uh, be bitter or angry at someone that disagrees with you. Because in fact, the God that we see in Scripture is a God that compels us to believe that everyone is made in His image. And so when even, even when people disagree with who you believe God to be, you're called to love them. That's beautiful. But that's not only one the, the one way that maybe we struggle with the concept of God is love, and so we create God according to our definition. The second one, and this is really common, I know that I've worked through this, I'm sure many of you have, which is that you think God is love and you're like, nah, that's debatable. Like, that's debatable. You know why it's debatable? Have you looked at the world? There is so much evil. There is so much suffering. There is so much brokenness happening right now in this time period in my life, in other people's lives, and certainly in history. The idea that God is love, it does not fit. And that's understandable. Like, this is a really true struggle it's a really honest struggle this is a major philosophical debate and it has always been a major philosophical debate and it will continue to be a major philosophical debate because it is really difficult to square God as love with God allowing the type of brokenness and evil and suffering in the world that we see and we experience because from our experience when you love somebody you do whatever is necessary to keep them from harm and so we see what's taking place, and it does not feel as if God could be loving. It's difficult. Now, we do not have time to unpack this. This would take hours, and I would love to, but you'd be mad at me. So we're not gonna, we don't have time to unpack this tonight, but here's my encouragement. Go to a community group. Because we're going to discuss this in the community group this week, I want to encourage you to be honest with your struggle on this question, to share this, community group leaders. Will you dive into this question? And I've also asked the community group questions team to provide some notes and some nuggets uh, to think about in regards to this question so that there can be uh, something to bounce off of and to think through. So if there's ever a time to join a community group, it's this week alone because you can talk about God is love and then evil and suffering. Such a fun discussion. Everyone loves it. But see, it's it's okay to struggle with that. That's a, it's hard to believe that God is love and then to struggle with that reality because of the brokenness and, and evil and suffering in the world. But here's the good news you can claim and believe that God is love even though you don't know his reasons for allowing evil and suffering. Here's why because God got involved. He got involved here. You may not know the reasons. But you can't say God's not loving. Look at verse 32 of our passage this evening. Romans 8, verse 32, the Apostle Paul says this, He, God the Father, who did not spare His own Son, Jesus Christ, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? See, it's totally understandable to struggle with the reasons that God allows evil and suffering. But we can't say that God is not loving because God got involved here in this mess to rescue and to redeem and to save us. See, if God was loving, why would he have gotten involved? Why would he care? If God was unloving, then he would have just removed himself. Either he would have just said this It did not turn out the way that I imagined. Let's just destroy it and start over. Or he would have just sat back and passively disengaged from what is taking place. But God got involved. The Son of God came to redeem and to save us. So it's okay to struggle, but it's it's not true that you can't believe that God is loving because God has got involved in our mess. And maybe the third, and I think the, probably the most destructive belief is this. God is love, but for everyone but me. I believe that God is love, but there's no way that God could love me. God can love other people, and God can be for other people, but there's no way that God could love me because God knows me. He knows what I've done. Last night, last week, last year, 10 years ago, he knows everything I've done, and he knows what I'm most likely going to continue to do. And because he knows me, there's no way he could love me. I'm unfaithful, I'm selfish, I'm prideful, I'm indifferent to him often, I have a lot of doubts. There's no way God could love me. Look what the Apostle Paul says to us says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. There's a very famous pastor, theologian, uh, scholar, reformer, Martin Luther, he said this, the sin underneath all of our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ, and so we must take matters into our own hands. You see, all of these ways are us taking matters into our own hands, right? We, we deny That God is love, and so we create God according to our definition of love. We doubt that God is love because of evil and suffering in the world, and so we take matters into our own hands by kind of disengaging. Or we doubt that God is capable of loving us because of what we've done, and so we take matters into our own hands by saying, I have to begin to perform for God. I gotta clean myself up. God can love the really religious and the holy and the the constant churchgoers. He can love those people that are are closer to good than me, but there's no way he can love me. And this is one of the most destructive and dangerous sins. And the Apostle Paul reminds us, and he says this, Who can bring a charge against you? Who? No matter what you've done, what you will do, who can bring a charge against you? Why? Why can you rest assured that nobody can bring a charge against you? Because it is God who justifies this word justifies or justification means to be made right. The Apostle Paul is reminding us that you can rest assured in God's love because it is God who justifies, not you. You don't justify yourself. You cannot make yourself right with God. There's nothing you can do. There's no performance. There's no certain level of good. There's no certain amount of good works. It doesn't matter how many people you help across the street. It does not matter. You cannot make yourself right with God because an imperfect being can never make amends to a perfect being. But thank God it's not up to us. It's God who justifies. And how did God justify? Well, apostle Paul tells us. He says, "Through Christ Jesus who died and more than that was raised. He died for you and for me, he took our place. He paid for our sins, he paid our debt, he bridged the gap between God and us through his sacrificial death. And then he was raised to prove that he was a victorious Messiah and Savior. And then it says this little detail. And now he's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. What does that mean? That Christ, as we picture, is at the right hand of God the Father interceding for us. It means this. Every single time you fail, so every day... <laughs> Every time you fail and you sin and you're indifferent and you're unfaithful and you're selfish and you're prideful, Jesus Christ is applying a justified verdict to you over and over and over and over again. No matter what you do or what you will do, Jesus Christ is interceding. He is ensuring that the love of God is complete for you because he has died and he has risen. And through faith in him, you have come to receive a complete love, an unconditional love. Not a conditional love. That you can lose. An unconditional love that is constantly being applied to you as Christ intercedes for you and for me. It's really difficult, I think, to to really center ourselves on the reality and the weight and the depth of God's love. Because as I said earlier, the way that we view God as loving is, is constantly affected by how we love people and how we receive love from other people. And so love is a tricky thing. It's, it's a difficult thing for us to wrap our minds around and to really remind ourselves that our, our, the love of God is complete and we're loved no matter what. It's an unconditional love because we don't love people unconditionally. We experience all different types of love, but unconditional is rare. C.S. Lewis, who was a a fiction author, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and also uh, a Christian scholar and theologian, he wrote a great book among many of his great books, and it was entitled The Four Loves. How many of you have read it? Have you read it? If you haven't, on the app there was a link to get the book. <laughs> that was pretty. good. I was like, "Come on, got it." Always be selling. That's what they're saying. That's what they're saying. <laughs> selling C.S. Lewis' Four Loves book. It's a wonderful book, and here's why it's a great book. He takes the four the four uh, words used in the Greek language for love, and he diagnoses them, and he mines out the truth and and really the transformative nature of These words of love, how they affect us, how we view God, how we view other people. And the first one that he speaks about and is a Greek word for love is storge love. That's affection. It's the love of affection. It's the love that I have for electronic music and affection for it as ultra is coming up. It's the love that I have for carrot cake and every dessert ever made. That's why whenever we have desserts out here, I have like a little special one because you guys just attack the desserts and I can never get back there fast enough. It's the affection I have for buying books, not even necessarily reading them, just buying them. How many of you are there, right? You just, you just love buying books. You're like, I'm going to read it one day. You're like, how many have I read? I just keep buying them. It's the affection that I have for spending time with my friends and, and with my family. It's the affection that I have for sauces. I'm a sauce guy. How many sauce people in the room? Sauce on everything except for steak. Good garlic aioli. Wow. <laughs> affection. We have affection, love for all these different things. Storge love. But then there's phileo fil- love. That's the love of Friendship. And this is a deeper level of love. See, this is not simply a love towards another person that you have commonalities with, but it's a love where there's a connection between you and a friend where you're moving in the same direction together. Maybe the way to think about it is you have storge love, affection for your friends, but your best friends you have phileo love for real, true, deep friendship where you're moving together, you're challenging each other, you're growing together. As we read in the book of Proverbs that iron is sharpening iron. It's those relationships where you're being sharpened, you're being challenged. It's so a it's a wonderful love to find and to have and to cherish. And then the third love that we see, yeah, you know, you know, experienced and, and many of us are also waiting for is Eros love. That's romantic love. And this love is a love that is between one person. It's a love that you don't share. It's very unique. It's a sexual love, but it's also not a sexual love. Sometimes we we mistake that, that Eros love is, is romance and we think fulfillment of sexual desires with this person. But that's not necessarily the case. See, this type of love isn't about using another person to make you happy or to fulfill your sexual desires. This type of love is aimed at another person regardless of what may transpire in the relationship. It's a type of love that demands vows at a marriage ceremony and a celebration because it is unique. It is felt more than the other loves. It is a type of love that says, for rich or for poor, for death do us part, in good seasons and bad. I'm going to be aimed at you. I'm going to grow together with you. It's a very deep type of love, and, and that's why it's a love worth waiting for. It's a love that we should be willing to be patient with. It may not be easy, but it's a love to wait for, and here's why. Because what happens a lot of times with Eros love is that we have storge love, affection, or maybe phileo love, friendship, with another person, and we want Eros love. We want to experience this unique love, and so we try to force it. We try to force a love with someone else to make it romantic, and that just becomes destructive. So it is a love worth waiting for, as difficult as that may be, because it is unique in that sense. And so these three loves are loves that are experienced and, and by all people on different levels for the most part. But there's a fourth love, and it's the most unique. It's a love that actually goes against our very nature, and that's agape love. That's divine love. It's a love that is unconditional and unselfish. It's a love that loves the unlovable. It loves the overlooked. It loves the people that have nothing to offer. It's a type of love that truly gives 100% and expects 0% in return. It It goes very much against our nature. And this agape love, this divine love, is the love of God. As we see demonstrated in Christ who sacrificed himself for you and me. What do we have to offer? We gave 0% to God because what does the Apostle Paul say? It's God who justifies through Christ's death and his resurrection. And now he's interceding for us, though we've done nothing, 0% to earn it, to deserve it. And yet God was completely unselfish in pouring his love out to us in Christ. This is agape love. And this type of love, when you come to know it, when you come to believe in it, when you experience it, it transforms you, transforms everything about you. It changes the way that you view God. Here's how it changes the way that you view God. When you experience the divine agape love of God, you now can look to God with affection, with storge love. Because how could you not look to God with affection when he has given you forgiveness and assured you of eternal life and brought you together in relationship with him and you've been full of the spirit and you see the transformation happening in your life and now you gather with his people to show affection to God. So much of what we do on Sunday night is gathering together to give God affection through singing and through prayer and through listening to his word because he deserves all of our affection. But we're not only able to give God our affection as we receive the agape love of God, we're also now able to view God as a friend. We have phileo love with God. Actually read in scripture that God is our friend. And here's how we know that God is our friend. Because he is for you. Right? Real true friendship sharpens. It challenges and as we receive the agape love of God and it transforms our hearts and our mind, we now see Scripture as a sharpening tool to grow us more into the image of Christ and the conviction of the Holy Spirit that begins to shape and to mold our hearts and our minds. And so we have this type of true friendship with God. The barrier is gone. The chasm has been closed. There is a true relationship. And then also we can look to God with eros love. And this feels the most weird because you're like, that's like romantic and that I don't understand how that's the case. It's this intimate love. But see, eros love is a love that is aimed at one person. It's a love that requires commitment and vows. It's, it's a love that is unique in its focus and this is the type of love that when you receive the agape love of God, you can actually return to God as you seek to love him. All throughout the New Testament, there's this very interesting metaphor that says that we are the bride and Christ is the what? Bridegroom. This marriage metaphor that we are married to Christ. There's actually a picture that when we're united with Christ, that there, was gonna, there will be a feast a wedding celebration. What is this getting at? See, the reality is, is that when we come to receive the love of God, this unconditional transformative love, we can come to know that God is committed to us and therefore we can be committed to him. You see, in the relationship between Christ as the bridegroom and us as the bride, there's no divorce. He is 100% committed to you and to me, He is interceding for you, applying that justified verdict to you over and over and over again, and he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you. If he is for you, who can be against you? You can look to God with this type of intimate, committed love. And as this begins to transform the way that you view God because you've received his agape love, and so now you look back to give God affection and to give God the love of friendship and to give God this Eros love of aiming your life and giving him all of who you are, it also not only affects the way you view God and the way you love God, but also the way that you love other people. You see, one of the really incredible things that happens as God begins to grow you in your life is that you receive God's love and something natural happens, is that now you want to show the love of God to other people. And the kind of love that God shows us is agape. It's this divine love. And as this love transforms you, you can now look to your affections that disappoint you and show your affections agape love. When your friends disappoint you, you can show them agape love. When your romantic interest, your spouse disappoints you, you can show him or her your agape love see, this type of love that we receive from God is transformative. It changes everything about who we are, the way we think, the way we treat other people. It's a type of love that causes you not only to realize that God has given 100% and you've given zero, but it causes you to desire to show that type of love to others, to give 100% and expect zero from others. To love the stranger and the enemy. To love those that disappoint you. This is really the the life of a Christian. The life of a Christian is being formed into the image of God. The big theological word is sanctification, being made more like Christ. But what is that? It's really being made more into the image of God's love. It is growing in agape love. Receiving the love of God, reminding yourself of that, and then showing it to others. And the reason that we do that, and the reason that that conviction to love other people that way and and to love God as well comes is because we believe what verse 35 says. Verse 35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? What? If God loves you with this unconditional, unselfish, divine agape love, what could separate you from that? Who can condemn you? Who can bring a charge against you if Christ has died for you and he's risen and he's interceding for you? Nothing. Nothing. And when you remember that and when you sit in that and believe that and the conviction wells up in you, it enables you to live unselfishly, to love other people that way. We're told that people will know us by our what? Love. What type of love is that? It's agape love. That's how people will see Christ in you, as that transformative love of God changes how you view not only God, but how you view others. The last few verses here in Romans 8 are very famous. Uh, There are verses that really speak of the height and the depth of God's love. And instead of unpacking that, here's where I want to uh, put forth our video story. So our life story is going to be on video, and some of you will recognize uh, the Crossbridge member here. This Crossbridge member doesn't live here anymore, but when you're a member, you're always a member. She, her name is Betsy Coyle Cardenas. She's now married. Uh, she found the love of her life here in Miami. She's an OG, Crossbridge Brickle. She was here at, near the beginning, and she was in leadership. And she was in Miami for five years, and she came to experience the agape love of God. And it, and it changed the way that she views God and the way she views others. And she was known for her contagious spirit and the way that she loved people well. She's now in Colorado training uh, for a government job, and uh, she loves Miami. We pray that God brings her back somehow. But I want to share her story with you because uh, it's really a story that unpacks Romans eight thirty seven through 39, just the depth of God's love. So will you watch this?
1: Born into blessing and taught how to love, I was raised in a family that had awe for the Lord above. In church, told do, 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 and don't, 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 I made a vow to myself that I never and I won't. At 16, I truly accepted the Lord into my heart, understanding his grace and his love a lot more than I did from the start. When I got to college, I grew leaps and bounds in my faith, focusing on all the good works, like committing to wait. Wait for the lord and wait for his goodness but when i moved to the big city i found out that i couldn't taste and see that the lord is good and trust in his plan but trouble and temptation found me in the form of a charming man my spirit was willing but my flesh was weak i thought if i give myself to this man i would find the love that i seek little did i know the consequences of this choice would lead me to ending a life that never had a voice Scarlet A on my forehead and numbness of emotion, I became that girl who had an abortion. Against all I believed and all I had planned, I made a choice that day that will shape who I am. After shame and depression, I sought healing and peace, realizing it would be a lifelong struggle thinking about the child that I didn't keep. I cling to the rock, my redeemer, and my lord. I am the worst of all sinners, but Jesus died so that I could have a chance for more. I refuse to live a life of hiding, instead I cling to the truth of the Lord God Almighty, who not only loved me as a good Christian girl, but still loves me now, a redeemed sinner trying to love and serve in this world. You see, for so long I believed this lie, that I was too good of a person to do such awful things. I mean, how could I, and why? The minute I started relying on my strength instead of his, was harder to trust and easier to sin. I would pray, oh Lord, please don't let me mess up again without rooting my identity and my satisfaction in him. In the moment of temptation, my good works weren't enough. I had spent too long believing that I was too strong to forsake Christ's love. So I stand here today confident in this life-changing truth, that without Jesus, I am nothing. He died to save me and to save you. Thus says the Lord, for I will forget their iniquity remember their sins no more so thank you for your listening ear and I pray that you'll see that God loves the sinners he even loves me
0: pretty amazing, huh? I think she said it well. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Will you pray with me? God, we are so grateful of that truth. Lord, we all have our demons and our baggage. We're all broken and sinful. We are people full of doubts and indifference we're unfaithful, we're selfish, we're prideful. And yet you love us. We can offer nothing to you and yet you've given everything for us. You've not only given us yourself as Christ, you have come and you have lived a life that we couldn't and you have died a death that we deserve and You were buried, and you came forth victorious on the third day, resurrected, and now you are interceding for us, applying that justified verdict over and over and over again. You have done all of these things, shown us your unconditional love. This is truly grace, God. Would we be people that cling to that, the agape love of you, God. Would we show you our affection as we come and gather to worship you corporately as we worship you individually? Would you remind us that we are friends because of Christ? And would we aim our hearts, our time, our talent, our treasure, our desires towards you in a committed and intimate love? and would you shape us and transform us to love other people, to show the love that you have given to us to others. Or we pray that by your spirit, you would do these things in our hearts, in our minds, in our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.